Welcome to the Upper Room Community Church Podcast. Wherever you are in your journey, we hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit us at upperroom.ca. Good morning, Upper Room. It's back live again, which means I'm now cut down right back to size, but that doesn't decrease the enthusiasm that I feel as I continue this series that we're on new life in relationships and especially looking at marriage. Early 90s, two guys by the name of Patterson and Kim wrote a very interesting book called The Day America Told the Truth. It was uh, comprehensive enough that it represented the whole country accurately. And they managed to guarantee uh, confidentiality. And so the truth level of the input was extremely high. The reliability was very, very high. In one of the chapters that was entitled, What's Really Going On Between the Sexes? This is what they said. The bottom line answer we got was... Men and women are meeting in a vacuum. They feel almost universally that they can't communicate with each other. There is distrust and bitterness between the sexes and it's operating right on the surface. They listed communication problems and constant fighting as two of the top three reasons for divorce. At the same time, when you listen to men and women talk from the heart, it becomes obvious that both sexes want the same thing from each other. Women want men to open up their ears and listen, to open up their hearts and understand who women are, what we need. Men want women to do the same thing. In other words, they want intimacy, but they don't know how to get it. And so they settle for conflict and mistrust, and that dreaded spirit of resignation slowly begins to creep in. Nothing has changed very much in the last 25 years. So the question is, how did this happen? And how are we going to get out of it and recover once again that vision that we painted last week and to experience the new life of Christ within us, breathing that vitality and getting rid of that spirit of resignation. So let me very quickly recap what we learned last week. We learned, first of all, that God's blueprint for marriage was to firmly and squarely set it in the context of a mission. They would rule and subdue creation and express their creation in the image of God by harnessing creation for the benefit of humanity and for the glory of God. This required a permanent commitment. Marriage was a covenant sealed by the sexual union, the ritual that sealed the covenant, and they were intended to pursue whole person intimacy, emotional, intellectual, and spiritual, expressed in the physical, by which they were to complete one another, to be helpers in the true sense of the word, and to do this simultaneously with the pursuit of holiness, intimacy with God. And the last verse of chapter 2 is a beautiful metaphorical description. The man and the woman were naked before each other and before God without shame. A powerful metaphor of this kind of whole person intimacy. Now, along with this commission, God had given them a very simple test. They had complete freedom to do whatever they wanted. The only thing they were not allowed to do was to eat of the fruit of a particular tree. The point of that commandment was to reinforce the fact that they were to accomplish this mission in dependence upon God. They did not have wisdom of their own. And the eating of that fruit would represent an act of independence and you accomplishing the mission through their own wisdom. Well, in the passage that was just read for us from Genesis chapter 3, you know what happened. They were tempted and they failed. Look at the immediate consequences of that. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and notice this, and also desirable for gaining wisdom. That was the heart of it. She took some and ate it. 
She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. The immediate consequence of this act of rebellion, of seizing independence of God and relying upon their own wisdom was an awareness of nakedness and along with it the shame. Well, what was going on? So they covered themselves up with these fig leaves. Why the cover up? Well, first of all, though they could not put the names on the emotion, they were feeling guilt because they had rebelled against God. And now they were also feeling shame because the other person would probably know what they were feeling and didn't want to be exposed. And thirdly, there was a fear now of being seen just the way they were. So just as nakedness without shame became a powerful metaphor of intimacy and vulnerability without any fear and therefore permitting that kind of whole person intimacy, the fig leaves became a perfect metaphor of blocked intimacy at all levels, emotional, intellectual, and particularly as we, as we saw last week, spiritual intimacy. So here were the three things that entered the picture so far. Guilt, shame, and fear. From there, it was all downhill. Look what happens as God confronts them. And God said, have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat? And look at the man's response. The woman you put, her, put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me. This is perfect buck passing. Adam managed to blame Eve and in the process managed to blame God because he had given Eve to her. And Eve learned very well and blamed the serpent who was of course the devil personified in this story. And so now we add blaming and refusing responsibility as a fourth element that entered. And it's not hard to see how this would be another roadblock in the pursuit of that kind of whole person intimacy that we talked about that was so essential for the accomplishing of the vision. Well, it's not over yet. In a sense, the worst is yet to come. Because this is what God says in response to that. To the woman, he said, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now, it is very important to realize that this is not God declaring what should be. He is not giving the husband the freedom to be boss and rule over his wife. In fact, a careful exegesis of the Hebrew language, paying attention to the immediate context, tells us that the essence of what God was saying was that from now on, God-given differences, your strengths and your skills that were meant to help one another are actually going to become tools for manipulation and control. One man put it very beautifully. He said he called it the passion to define and control. To define, first of all, what is good for me and then control you to make sure that I'm going to get that. <laughs> and, and what's worse, I will also define what is good for you and I'm going to try and make you and persuade you to agree with that. Passion to define and to control. This is what really messed up the works. What was interesting in that Patterson and Kim book, they surveyed six uh, college professional women in a downtown office building in a major metropolitan city. And they said, what is the greatest area of conflict? All six of them said, who's in the driver's seat? Control. Isn't it amazing that a story that most people will ridicule today as an ancient fable has such an incisive analysis on the central issue of the problem between the sexes in marriage and really a picture of problems with all intimate relationships. God-given strengths and skills would now be used to hurt and compete rather than complete. So maybe as a result of appropriate intimacy, they discover, uh, a woman discovers that her husband really values and treasures respect. Well, wait till she gets the chance through a cutting remark, maybe with the skill of her, her use of words, to be able to cut him down in public. 
The man on the other hand, knowing that his wife is someone who loves nurture and care. In a public setting where someone may be taking a strip off her, instead of coming to her defense, keeps quiet. Because that's his way of hurting her. These are just a few simple everyday examples of how strengths and skills that were given to complete one another begin to compete with each other. So given this, given this mess, guilt, shame, fear, blame, refusal to accept responsibility, the passion to define and control, both what is good for me and what I think is good for you, is there any hope of recovering that, not only recovering the vision, but actually executing it? Has God given up and settled down to something much, much more realistic and much less demanding? No, we learned last week that both Jesus and Paul, the apostle, the first century Christian leader who wrote many of the letters in the New Testament, both repeated that central verse we looked at last week. For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. With all the implications of that. So God has not changed that vision. However, because of this mess that we have created, because of grasping for independent wisdom, he now takes over as helper. God provides us the help that only he can. Remember we learned last week the word helper was God giving us something that we don't have so that we can accomplish our potential to the fullest. Um, what does this uh, help look like? In one of the letters that the Apostle Paul, the first century leader, wrote to a church in Ephesus, which is roughly close to Izmir in modern-day Turkey, in the section that deals with marriage, where he refers to that verse from Genesis, he introduces it with these words. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now the point of the analogy with drunkenness is the issue of control, which as we know is the real problem in marriage, right? Just as a person who's drunk loses control and is controlled by something else, so to be filled with the Spirit of God is to come under the control of the Holy Spirit. And Paul goes on to say that in this text, a person who is controlled by the Spirit of God has four things going on. They are speaking to one another. They are singing with a worshipful heart. They have a thankful spirit rather than a grumbling spirit. And they are submitting to one another instead of controlling one another. Exactly the kind of things that are needed to pull off this vision of marriage. The exact opposite of guilt, shame, fear, blaming and control. And the way the Holy Spirit accomplishes this, notice how the text ends. Be filled with the Spirit is the beginning. And the end, it says, out of reverence for Jesus Christ. If the Spirit is the power, the motivation is reverence for Jesus. The Holy Spirit accomplishes this helping by building within us a deep, deep reverence for Jesus, as a result of which our behaviors begin to change. Now, how does this work? What exactly is reverence for Christ? Now, we tend to think of reverence as fear. And if we're going to be controlled by somebody because of fear, that's a, not only a very dysfunctional relationship with God, very legalistic, it's not going to help at all in the horizontal dimension of our relationships because it's going to be, again, a matter of performance. And now no joy, no satisfaction, no fresh air of vitality coming into the spirit of resignation. But that's not at all the kind of fear that Paul is talking about when he talks about the Holy Spirit building a reverence for Jesus. In the Psalms, for example, we read this verse, Psalm 130, verse 4. But with you there is forgiveness, so that you may be feared. Now that's an interesting juxtaposition of two words, because we don't normally put those two things together, do we? We might say, 
with you there is forgiveness so you don't have to be feared. Like if you got your boss upset at work by performing badly or whatever and he's angry with you and he's hurt, you're going to be afraid. You're going to avoid him. You don't want to go into his office. But once you know that he has forgiven you and he's okay, you lose your fear. So actually what we should expect the psalmist says, but with you there is forgiveness, so you may not be feared. No, instead he's saying with you there is forgiveness, so you may be feared. Therefore, right away we have a clue that this fear is something that deepens the relationship, not pushes it away. The second clue comes from the fact that in our everyday experience we know that we are controlled by whatever we fear. You fear flying, you're not going to get into a plane. When I go overseas, I fear getting sick, so I'm very, very careful as to what I eat. I will pass over a lot of great food that looks very tasty to eat something that is bland and straightforward because I'm afraid of being sick. Whatever we fear ends up controlling us. In that case, this fear of Christ, this reverence for Jesus, which is not a push away reference, but a pull me near reference, is a relationship that begins to control us because of the value and the worth that we put on the relationship. Tim Keller in his book, The Meaning for Marriage, has an amazing illustration of this, <coughs> worth repeating. He talks about a woman who grew up in a home where she was given this message that she's not really significant until she gets married. So being a single adult, she just resented this and she really struggled with shame and a lack of significance. Also a man that she dated for many years, who looked like he might meet this requirement of hers, refused to get married to him, so she was really angry at him. So there was struggle with insignificance and anger. She went to see a counselor, and this counselor very wisely told her that the expectation that the parents had put on her as, and tied significance to marriage was completely invalid. And so she turned her attention to work. And so she, she now no longer struggled with her singlehood, she was getting her significance from her work. However, two things were still a problem. She was experiencing a lot of anxiety at work, and she still was angry with the man who did not marry her. And then she became a follower of Jesus. And as she began to understand the gospel, the forgiveness and the acceptance that there is in Jesus, that relationship began to satisfy her so much that she now no longer needed to get significance from her work. She realized that the counselor was only half right. She had shifted her idol from marriage to career. Now she realized it was Jesus who would give her what even her work would not give her. And so she began to experience less anxiety at work. And she was finally able to forgive the man who did not marry her. What happened afterwards, you have to read the book to find out. But the point of what I'm saying is simply this. This is a beautiful illustration of a relationship with Jesus. The fear of the Lord that actually becomes this deep motivation within us to change. And you know, we use that, uh, that kind of reverence language in everyday language when we think if a man is completely besotted with a woman that he's in love with, we might say, oh, he reveres the ground she walks on. What does that mean? He's not angry. It's not a push away relationship. The revere is he values her so much that even the ground that she touches becomes worthy of worship. That's the context. And applied to marriage, you can see what this means. It means that reverence for Christ in our marriage then is that our relationship with Jesus becomes increasingly significant and valuable so that what we think of him dominates and controls our behavior in our marriage. So we gradually shift from blame and control to serving one another by completing each other to fulfill God's mission. Can I just read that again? Reverence for Christ in our marriage means that our relationship with Jesus becomes increasingly significant and valuable so that what we think of him dominates and controls our behavior gradually, not instantly, so we slowly shift from blame and control to humbly serving one another. 
So let me just unpack further how the details of what this looks like. That's the central idea. Specifically, the Holy Spirit illuminates the mindset of Jesus Christ and makes it so attractive to us that we want to be more and more like the mind of Jesus and desire that it begin to affect all of our relationships, especially in marriage. So what is this mind of Jesus Christ? The Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2, another letter that he wrote while he was in jail to another church that met in a place called Philippi, he says these words, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Selfish ambition, that word is actually translated rivalry in some translations. And before it's used in the New Testament, the first time it's used here, it was used outside of the New Testament by Aristotle, the Greek philosopher, to describe how people pushed themselves forward, the self-promotion that characterized the political realm. And we know that all too well. And come October elections, we'll see plenty of that kind of selfish ambition pushing ourselves forward. Paul says, don't do that. No self-promotion. Secondly, he said, or conceit. Now, this word conceit is a very interesting word. We think of a conceited person as a proud person. But it's interesting, in the Greek, it comes from two words, which means empty and glory or opinion. So the conceit here is an empty opinion of yourself. You can see how, how that would function in marriage. What Paul is saying is, you have opinions of yourself, and you have opinions about things that you think are very substantial, but they actually are quite empty. They're probably wrong. That's one way in which the glory or the opinion is empty. And yet you are using that to push yourself forward. So all self-promotion is actually based on nothing that is stable, but just an empty opinion that isn't even accurate. And secondly, it's also empty in another way. Even if your assessment of yourself was right, even if your opinion was right, when you push yourself forward and succeed, the glory that you get from that is empty glory. So whether in terms of a cause or in terms of an effect, he said, this is a fruitless exercise. Promoting yourself, either on the basis of a highly held opinions that happen to be not valid, or if valid, any victory that you have is a very, very empty, shallow victory. And you know, we know, guys, from, our, from those who are married, if we win an argument with our wives, she loses. And when she loses, you know what happens. You've lost anyway. So there's no way you can win. That's exactly what point, point Paul is saying. So, so do nothing out of rivalry. Do nothing out of humility. That's the negative side. The opposite of the mind of Jesus, right? Because he was glorious. He had a perfect right to believe himself to be ultimately, awesomely glory. And that would not be empty. It would be a solid opinion. And the whole goal of the New Testament, of the scriptures, is for Jesus to promote himself so we would worship him. That's a whole other sermon in itself. How different, yet, yet he who had the right to do this did exactly the opposite. He did not promote himself. Instead, he became and became served. So the selfish ambition and conceit are the very opposite of the mind of Jesus. So these are not just empty exhortations. These are not just rules. They come out of an understanding that this was exactly the way Jesus functioned. And we so love Jesus that we say, Jesus, I want to be like that. I want to say no to selfish ambition. I want to say no to conceit because you said no to them. Instead, he says, in humility, consider others more significant than yourself. Now, this is important in his explanation. What do you mean more significant than yourself? Now, now let, let's suppose I am a preacher. I have some gifts in teaching and preaching. This doesn't mean that I say to somebody else, you know what, I'm just not that good a preacher. You're much, much better than I am, if they're not. 
That's not to count somebody more significant than yourself. Humility doesn't mean thinking less of yourself, just as it doesn't mean thinking too much of yourself. Humility means to think accurately about yourself and accurately about other people. What it does mean is to become a helper. It means if in those areas I actually am better than my wife and better equipped, thinking of her and counting her more significant than me doesn't mean pretending that she's better than me at that, but it means to use what I have to build her up. And that's why one person discovered it, that described it as humility is the noble choice to use your influence for the good of others but for yourself. To hold any power in the service of others. Can I say that again? Humility is a noble choice to use your influence for the good of others before yourself. To hold any power in the service of others. This, this humility, by the way, this lowliness of mind, is a literal translation, was despised in Greco-Roman culture. It was something that was thought to be strenuously opposed. And yet, today... Christian or non-Christian, Christ follower or not, we admire humility and we are repelled by ang uh, anguished people. When, when did this humility revolution take place? One professor by the name of John Dixon who did research on this traced it right to Jesus Christ and specifically Jesus going to the cross. And he asked, where is the first piece of literature in anywhere that humility is celebrated? You know which one it is? This particular passage in Philippians 2 that we're looking at because it was the mindset of Jesus. And we so adore Jesus. We so are so reverential. We're so bound to him because of this forgiveness and his welcoming spirit to us that we want to become more and more like him in our relationships. See how this is working now? This is how that whole thing works. The rebellion has brought about Fear, guilt, shame, blaming, shifting responsibilities, passion to define and control. But the Holy Spirit, by building a reverence for Jesus, slowly begins to produce within us the mind that says, I don't want selfish ambition. I don't want empty glory. I, I don't want to push myself. Instead, I want, like Jesus, to use my strengths to serve my wife and she vice versa. All right. As we continue this journey, the next question that comes logically is, okay, if I need the mindset of Jesus to pull this vision of marriage off, and if I need the Holy Spirit to magnify Jesus in my life, to be filled with the Spirit, what then does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Because that's the central exhortation, right? For instance, as I'm filled with the Spirit, Christ is magnified, my mind is renewed, and my marriage gets renewed. So how then do we get filled with the Spirit? Now, Many Christians think of this in terms of uh, something dramatic happening. In fact, people in the charismatic tradition were associated with tongues or prophecy. Now, that's not to say that these dramatic things don't happen. In fact, the history of revivals in the church shows that when the Spirit comes upon a, a, a body of worshipping community, so many dramatic things happen. But the dramatic part is God's business. My own observation in my own life for 57 years as a Christian, 37 years as a pastor, and continue to try and help other people from my own studies and readings, I've discovered that a process is absolutely crucial in this whole thing. That God takes care of the crisis, dramatic encounters of the filling of the Spirit. Our job is to focus on the process in between these crises, and there are two elements to the process that I found are extremely important. The first one is repentance. Remember Psalm 130, we said, with you there is forgiveness, so you may be feared, that reverential fear. Well, forgiveness is conditional repentance. If we repent, then we forgive. In other words, this is not just like some breast beating or demeaning yourself. That's not humility. 
It simply means that when marriage, as it will do, reveals to us where fear, guilt, shame, blaming, refusing to accept responsibility, the passion to define and control, when these things show up, don't argue them away. Instead, confess them to God and receive his forgiveness. That's what it's saying. And by the way, marriage is uniquely de de uh, designed by God to reveal the dark side of our lives. This was one of the greatest discoveries I made about 15 to 20 years or so in my marriage, theologically. Let me give you a powerful illustration. John Piper is a contemporary, and he's put this in public so I can easily mention his name. He has been an influential pastor, very influential pastor, and it so happens he's the same age as I am. And he started at uh, Bethlehem Baptist Church than I, when I started at Rexdale, but they're all similarities then. He has written dozens and dozens of seminal books, and he had a Twitter following of 330,000. Mine reached 50 before I shut it down. So that's so what you know. But in 19, 2008, when he was 63 years old, John Piper put this on his website, that recently God has been showing me some things about my soul, some character flaws in me as a result of which I'm hurting the people closest to me. So his church gave him a nine-month sabbatical to deal with those issues. And when he came back on his first Sunday, this is what he said. He said, all sins of the soul are ultimately relational sins and they find their worst expression in marriage or in the most intimate relationship you might have. And for example, he said, these are five sins that God showed me during my sabbatical. Selfishness, self-pity, blaming, sullenness, and sulking. And then he said this amazing thing. He said to the church, he was writing that, he said, none of you would call me those five things, right? You would never say Pastor John Piper is any one of those things, but ask my wife and she'll be able to elaborate on each one of those. That's why I said marriage is uniquely designed to reveal our sinfulness. And by the way, if any of you doubts this, can I ask you a question, married men or married women? Do you ever speak to people outside the way you speak to your spouse when you're in the middle of an argument? It's almost certainly not in church and most probably not in work. Slamming the door, walking away in disgust, raising your voice, bringing up a history of faults against you. But we do this all the time. It isn't because we are suddenly worse or we are pretending. It's marriage designed by God in that framework of covenant permanency and intimacy so you can't run away to see what you really like. And when that happens, we are to confess it to God and then to confess it to our spouses, which, by the way, is even harder. Have you ever wondered why it is easier to confess to God than it is to another person? When it should be the other way around because God is infinitely holy. His human beings are sinful like us. Why is it the other way around? I think there's at least two reasons. Number one, God is invisible. God is inaudible. And when I'm speaking, it's only me who's around in a sense, right? So somehow it doesn't seem as bad. But when I'm talking to my wife and say, this is what I did. I'm so sorry. I shouted at you. I was selfish. Oh, it looks so much uglier. It's right there. And she's nodding her head and saying, yeah, that's what happened. So you see, it's pride. It's pride that actually makes confession to God easier than confession to one another. The second reason, which I think is important, nothing to do with pride, has to do with fear. As you see, I'm, I'm guaranteed God's forgiveness. I'm not guaranteed my wife's forgiveness. And so sometimes there is fear and there's shame. Do you see how accurate Genesis chapter 3 is? Guilt, fear, shame, playing into the picture all the time. And yet, yet this kind of confession, this is the opening movements in a journey towards humility, as a result of which the Holy Spirit opens up more and more of our life to the mindset of Jesus. So that's the first thing, repentance. And the second word 
is renewal through his word. The second dimension of being filled with the Spirit. Repentance, so we make room for the Spirit and renew. Because it is through the Word of God that the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin. It is through the Word of God that the Holy Spirit assures us of the forgiveness that leads to this reverential transforming fear of God. And it is through the Word of God that the Holy Spirit brings up the mind of Christ within us. So basically, this is what renewal through the Word is like. I just kind of spelled out the process for you. We begin to love the mindset of Jesus that took him all the way to the cross. The no selfish ambition, no rivalry, so that we increasingly hate rivalry and conceit and instead humbly use our powers to build up and serve our spouses and repeatedly commit to the pursuit of whole person intimacy so that we can fulfill his mission in the world. See how this fits together? All the, and we've been going through a chain, we've been going through a roadmap. This is the journey we've taken. The, as, a, as we renew our mind through the word, Making room for the Spirit through repentance, we begin to love the mindset of Jesus that took him all the way to the cross, so that we increasingly hate rivalry and conceit, and instead humbly use our powers to build up and serve our spouses, and repeatedly commit to the pursuit of whole person intimacy, because we will fail, so that we can fulfill his mission in the world. So, let us do, let us regularly go to Jesus, the living word through the written word. That's what he says, right? He's waiting to receive us. Matthew 11, 28, 29. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. <laughs> That's resignation in marriage. Heavy laden. That the weight of pulling off a biblical vision of marriage is a burden and a responsibility. And I will give you rest. Isn't that what we want? Isn't that what we want? Restful marriages? Restful relationships? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Now, the, the yoke, there have been all kinds of fanciful interpretation of the yoke, but in the first century um, Judaism concept, con, context that Jesus was functioning in, the yoke of a rabbi was the teaching of the rabbi. To submit to a yoke was a disciple saying, I want to be mentored by you. I will receive your teaching. So Jesus says, come learn of me. <laughs> and then he says, come, I, I am lowly in heart. And that's exactly the, hum the lowly in heart is the humility. Jesus will teach us humility. And then to me, all even more am amazing. He says, come unto me, learn from me. For, he says, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Jesus teaches us what Jesus is. Remember, you've, you've heard this so many times before, that in the incarnation was the beginning of a whole new humanity. Jesus doesn't lecture us. He first became a human being. And as a human being, he learned humility and gentleness. And so what he learned as a man, that's why he's called the firstborn of all creation. He is able to teach you. And he teaches with humility. You know what? We learn amazingly from a humble teacher, right? And arrogant teachers push us away. And when that happens, when we come regularly to Jesus, having repented, open word, he then begins to teach humility with humility. And the yoke is a restful yoke in our marriages. So let me step back. This is what we learned so far today, right? We learned last week that marriage was set in the context of a mission a permanent covenant commitment, the pursuit of whole person intimacy, both vertically and horizontally, to receive divine wisdom from God, so we complete one another. What happened? Because of rebellion and the assertion of independence and the grasping for independent wisdom, guilt, shame, fear, blame and control, and the passion to define and control all messed up the whole situation. But God didn't change his plan. He gave us the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit becomes our power, and reverence for Christ becomes our motivation. The Spirit exalts Christ, so we increasingly love Him, and so serve our spouses with humility. 
We make room for the Spirit through repentance and renewal, through the Word, so He can teach us the easy yoke of humility. That's the journey that we've been on today. So, can I just kind of sum it up in one sentence for you? Simply this. Refuse to resign. Resolve to repent and renew. Refuse to resign. Don't give up. Resolve to repent and to renew. No resignation. Instead, resolution to resort to repent and to restore. So, it's time for another spiritual conversation. I hope you had the one that I suggested to you last week. This is a very different kind. This doesn't involve listening to tapes, reading books, or anything like that. This is a simple conversation. It may reveal something very important, but for each spouse to ask these six questions at the end of the day. Have I made you guilty today by my words or actions? Have I shamed you today by belittling you or putting you down? Have I excused myself today by blaming you? Have I tried to control you today in any way? Has my pride shown up today in our relationship? Tell me one way in which I can serve you tomorrow. And here are a couple of rules of engagement. Otherwise, it will become another argument. Number one, answer honestly but gently with only one illustration. This is not an occasion to dump 15 years of complaints on your spouse. This is to answer today's question. Answer honestly, but answer gently with only one illustration. Secondly, it's okay to say, no, you've been, you're doing okay. The goal isn't to maximize guilt, because that's the temptation. The goal is to help be helpful. And for the other spouse, accept the answer without argument. By all means, ask a question for clarification if you don't understand, but no argument, no self-defense. And then just simply confess it to God and confess it to her or to him. Ask for and receive forgiveness and then close with a brief prayer for the Holy Spirit to fill you and for Jesus to teach. That's a simple exercise for you to, to put into practice what you've learned today. Now I want to close with addressing one possible problem. There might be somebody here, maybe more than one, who would say, ah, this is all too much work. And this business of humility and confession, that all sounds like weakness. I'm really more Greco-Roman in my, in my understanding. Listen, if that's going on inside of you, that's pride. And I want you to listen to this statement that pride herself makes. And I hope it will shake you out of that kind of pride and allow you to at least begin to take the first steps. I cheat too. My name is Pride. I'm a cheater. I cheat you of your God-given destiny because you demand your own way. I cheat you of contentment because you deserve better than this. I cheat you of knowledge because you already know it all. I cheat you of healing because you're too full of me to forgive. I cheat you of holiness because you refuse to admit when you're wrong. I cheat you of vision because you'd rather look in the mirror than out a window. I cheat you of a genuine friendship because nobody is going to know the real you. I cheat you of love because real romance demands sacrifice. I cheat you of greatness in heaven because you refuse to wash another's feet on earth. I cheat you of God's glory because I convince you to seek your own. You like me because you think I'm always looking out for you. Untrue. I'm looking to make a fool of you. God has so much for you, admit. But don't worry, if you stick with me, you'll never know. As the worship team comes together, let me just lead you in prayer. Lord, this thing ought to terrify us. 
If, if nothing else, can we take the first step towards humility because we're dead scared of what pride is doing to us and can do if we don't arrest this. So as a husband, as a married man, and as one in deep relation, significant relationships, I want to be the first to say, oh God, the passion to define and control is alive and well. And it so often keeps me from speaking wisdom or keeping quiet. So I just simply want to say, forgive me. And Jesus, please keep making yourself so attractive. Holy Spirit, magnify Jesus. Let us love, love humility. Let us not just want to be like you, but love to be like you. That's a miracle that only you can do. So that we can then pull off this grand vision for marriage that you have for us. And be a blessing to one another, to our families, to the church family, to our neighbors, and to the world. In Jesus' name.